Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Pacific Gas and Electric got a little bit of some good news yesterday as California cleared it of responsibility for one of the deadliest fires in 2017. To give us a sense of how important that is to the company, uh, let's bring in Kit Connellidge. Kit is a senior industrials and utilities analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. So, Kit, does this reprieve, at least or at least an exoneration of that 2017 fire, the, the liability associated with that? Does that protect the company or save the company from bankruptcy? Uh, I don't think it does, Paul. I think uh, uh, we're going to see it be worth about $10 billion in, in less exposure. They still have $20 billion left of exposure. Uh, and maybe most important, uh, they have the concern that any future wildfire could lead rapidly to very large liabilities similar to what they have on the books now. One thing that I'm struck by, Kit, is that this comes with a backdrop of uh, several rating agencies saying that they could downgrade Californian utilities, possibly even to junk as a result of the liability kind of policies that they have. In other words, that utilities can be found liable uh, for damages from some of these wildfires. How much does that ratchet up the pressure? Uh, I think it, it puts pressure on California officials, but you wouldn't know it so far. Let's put it that way. The, uh, the governor yesterday expressed um, some sensitivity to these issues, and he said he was indicated he was trying to move things along faster, but faster in the case of California means maybe in six months we'll start to see some results. So California's uh, moving slow, huh? It, it's moving slow, and, and the problem is PG&E says we're running out of cash. So uh, they they feel like on a liquidity basis, they need to get something done right away. And also in order to basically hold the feet to the fire of all the parties in California and get something done about, as Paul mentioned, this long-term issue of what happens the next time there's a fire and everybody sues them again. Well, what happens, uh, being a homeowner in California myself and a customer of PG&E, what happens when this company does go into bankruptcy? Do the lights go out in California? Oh no, everything everything runs along just fine. Uh, they just got five and a half billion in uh, debtor in possession financing. So if anything, their liquidity has improved in the near term. I, I think it's fair to say neither the company nor California governor or the uh, regulators and other officials, nobody is gonna be interested in uh, operations not going well and in fact, the company has indicated one of the things they'll do in bankruptcy is increase spending for safety uh, and for capital investment in the uh, type of uh, capital spending for green projects that California always wants. So they're trying to say and do the right things that at least in California, people should be saying, oh, good, they're spending money where I want it. Uh, and they want to come out of it, of course, with people saying, by the way, here's the revenues for what you spent. So going back to the decision yesterday that PG&E is not responsible for the deadly 2017 fires, does that set any precedent for what their potential liability could be 
in 2018 wildfires? Uh, I don't think it does, Lisa, because uh, in that case, uh, in the 2017, the Tubbs fire, what we had was the company did say a while ago, months ago, that they didn't think they were responsible, and that turned out to be accurate. In the case of the 2018 fire, uh, the company has indicated, well, we did have some wires that were down and some uh, equipment that looked in bad shape. So if anything, that's indicating, I think, that uh, the, the potential for some real major liability is still there. Do we have this issue where there's, you know, real in the West, there seems to be fires all throughout the West every year. Do we have other utilities that are at risk like PG&E? I haven't seen it. Uh, I think it it really look uh, utilities are uh, creatures of regulators, right? I mean, the regulated monopolies, if they're revenues are higher than their costs, then they're fine. If the regulators don't raise their revenues to cover their costs, then you get this kind of situation. In the other states so far, uh, we seem to have had the regulators on board with the idea that if you have costs, even extreme costs for fires and so on, uh, obviously we have to reimburse the utility for, for what happened. there. It gets tricky when there are real issues of liability as there might be in the case of PG&E. Kit Connellidge, has this ever been so exciting to cover utilities? Uh, well, it's it's a low bar, but I would <laughs> I would say no. And how many, right. how many years have you, have you been covering I've been utilities? doing it 25, 27 years right, now. You've been around the block. This it's, is it's the been, apex. It's been a while. And this is the apex of utilities. This is the, the uh, big yeah, time. Acme. Uh, Kit Connellidge, Senior Industrials and Utilities Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Certainly, utilities have become an incredibly hot spot. This is the, an industry that's thought of as boring, the staple, the safe haven. And now we have this being the fodder for distressed investors, such as Canyon Capital, which is now diving in. Uh, a lot of question marks around California's utility complex. If Venezuela could get even messier, it has. We now have two presidents in the nation uh, with uh, Juan Guaido, uh, the 35-year-old opposition who has risen up, uh, getting a sign-off from legislation to be the president. Nicolas Maduro, who is the uh, current or was the president, uh, saying he is still the president. All of this is raising the specter of regime change, which is something that the U.S. President uh, uh, Trump has supported. The question is, how much... Does this really mean that the situation in Venezuela is about to shift? Joining us now, I'm very pleased to say, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Yakov Arnapolin, Portfolio Manager focused on emerging markets at PIMCO, normally uh, in London, but he is here with us in New Indeed. York. Good morning. Hopefully, good luck getting out. Yakov, <laughs> uh, uh, so let's start with Venezuela. Do you think that this is the moment that we are finally going to see regime change that will uh, allow the Venezuelan economy to regrow a bit? Well, uh, I'd say taking taking a step back, let's just remember what is going on in the country. It's a humanitarian crisis. Uh, if you recall, there was a story a little while ago saying that over the past year, an average Venezuelan lost 24 pounds in weight because one out of three Venezuelans is facing starvation. It's a nation of 30 plus million people. That's 10 million people in starvation. So let's say we're all hoping for regime change. 
and it's all very heady stuff, and we certainly would, you know, would love to see the back of Maduro. But uh, despite some of the recent developments, um, the base case is resolution is not necessarily in hand. Uh, the army still supports him, and um, their international community is, is fairly split. So although we've had this big spike in Venezuela... Wait, hold on a second. Yeah. You said the international community is fairly split. It's split. Right, so you've got the U.S., you've got Colombia, you've got some of the other nations nearby Venezuela, but then you have Russia and China. Right, and I think Mexico has come out uh, in favor of Maduro as well. AMLO was, uh, I think, went on record supporting the current administration. So I think the point is it's, it's, it'll take a while to resolve this. And, and even assuming we do, if and when we see regime change, there's probably still going to be conflicting uh, claimants, you know, the bondholders, the, some of the sovereign creditors like Russia and China. So, you know, that I think that's one of the reasons we've seen volatility. Um, but, you know, it's emerging markets. We see volatility in other places. And um, and even to the extent Venezuela, may, maybe there's been some euphoria in asset prices. There have been other spots in EM where we do think some of this optimism year to date is justified. If regime change does not take place in the streets, how does a country resolve the fact that it has two presidents? Is this a legal proceeding that needs to take place? What's, what are next steps? I, I'm not sure there are many precedents for that. Yep, exactly. <laughs> uh, I think it'll take, a, that's another, you know, let's say it was fairly complex and now it's even more complex. So it probably will take a while to sort out. And, you know, I guess the two sides just won't recognize each other. So you just said that uh, perhaps there are other areas in emerging markets where the optimism is more warranted. First, uh, so that means that the optimism that we've seen of late in Venezuelan assets, you think, is unwarranted. Yeah, I think that the, some of this euphoria around regime change, you know, to the extent this drags on and the standoff drags on, you know, maybe we, we do see bond prices come off once again. So the rally perhaps has gone too far there. So where are the other places in emerging markets where you think the optimism is warranted? You know, well, well uh, I'd say Egypt is, is one good example, uh, very compliant with the IMF program, will continue to like the currency, continue to like the bonds, um, significant economy, hugely important on Arab street, and that's one example. And uh, we're watching very closely countries that will have elections this year, Argentina and Ukraine, uh, single B credits, it's kind of hairy, Let's as, obviously because of these political developments and, and markets are fairly worried about what's going to happen. But to the extent they're able, as we are saying, to thread the needle and to the extent we see positive outcomes. So to the extent the incumbents succeed to stay in place in both countries, that could be a significant boost to asset prices. Taking a look at China, do the trade talks, which seem to be coming back to the fore a little bit, seem to be, the activity level seems to be a little bit better than maybe it was for the last uh, several months. Does that, how do you view that? Do you, are you, how constructive are you that any type of meaningful trade agreements can be made between China and the U.S.? I'd say we're, we're skeptical there as well. Uh, the, the anticipation is there'll be a truce, there'll be a detente that's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, or well, sorry, a couple of, I guess, a couple of months. Maybe it's, it won't be by March 1st, let's say, it's another, there'll be an extension, but, but we'll probably see something. How meaningful is that beyond the headlines? I think that's where we'll have a lot of questions. And, and you know, we do anticipate a resumption of conflict later in the year, you now simply because a lot of the issues around IP haven't been dealt with. And, and also, you know, what the, the data point that is important that we saw overnight is uh, the, the PBOC 
balance sheet expansion, right? So they basically announced uh, the ability for local banks to issue more perps, more AT, um, AT1 bonds. And that, in turn, should be actually quite a boost for the economy, right? So we, we should see a pickup in credit. We should see a, a slowdown in the deleveraging process. So that's actually a pretty, pretty decent near-term boost. Would you, would you be a buyer of perpetual bonds sold? It's for local. By, it's for local markets. It's buy you know buy Chinese banks for local investors. You know, so they're we'll, going to we'll get stuck with the losses. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll pick our spots. That's not going to be uh, you know. But but look, if you if you look across, there are some other large scale and international banks with a significant presence in China and Asia, whose um, asset prices, whose, whose bonds and stocks are trading at uh, up on the back of this. Okay, so a question for you: How much of your time do you spend traveling? A fair, a fair bit, and uh, look, it, it, it helps to have a, a 25 strong team. It, it helps that so we cover 50 to 60 countries a year among among the among us. Um, and some of it is obviously China. We've been to China twice so far this year. Some of it has come down to going to DC as much as possible, given that we have the Fed, the IMF, and the White House, which increasingly is dictating the path of asset prices in Venezuela, as we just discussed, in China, in Russia with sanctions, in Mexico with a lovely USMCA. So just real quickly, how did your portfolio perform in December and January? Just broadly. I mean, I, I can, yeah. you look like a relatively calm person. I can't imagine <laughs> having lived for the last two months <laughs> as an emerging market strategist. Well, that's, that's, that's emerging markets. You know, there's a saying that emerging markets give you the, the opportunity of a lifetime every quarter. Right? So, so <laughs> you know, there's, we're used to that. Too there's many opportunities of a lifetime. Many, many, many. Uh, but you know we, we've been we've been picking our spots. I think that's going to continue to be the theme. Broadly speaking, still like EM, think this is a good environment for EM in 2019 after the swoon of 2018. But uh, we have to pick our spots, and again, as always, kind of walk between the raindrops. Ten seconds: local currency or hard currency EM bonds. Uh, three month outlook local currency, twelve month hard currency. Yaakov Arnapolin, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. That was very interesting. It's interesting. It's there's so many places around the world that emerging market um, uh, strategists and investors uh, can place their money, um, but the managing that risk on a global scale is is just mind-boggling. Yaakov Arnapolin, portfolio manager, emerging markets from Pimco, joining us in a Bloomberg 11:30 uh, studio in New York. Thank you so much. Remember, Paul, when we used to talk about Bitcoin, those days kind of ended, huh? Yeah, I'm looking at the five-year chart of the uh, Bitcoin uh, index, and it's just extraordinary going from, you know, a couple hundred bucks uh, early 2017 to 20,000, and then here we are back down at 3,500. Yeah, and now JP Morgan is saying that it costs more to mine Bitcoin than the actual value itself. Joining us, Mike McLone, commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Mike, uh, what's your take on this JP Morgan assessment that it now costs more to mine Bitcoin? Does this mean uh, essentially, is this a good thing or a bad thing for the cryptocurrency? I, I think JP Morgan has been been very good about pointing out one of the key things about Bitcoin in mining is the number one factor to really affect mining is price. When the price goes down, it, it's not really the mining that matters. And they put out a report this time last year that I read three times, and they pointed that out. And lot, most of the mining occurs in China. And good luck really trying to measure what that costs, because there's connections with, you know, political connections or whatever. And a lot of it's happening in Russia. So it's hard to measure. But overall, it, 
in those parts of the world, I suspect they're probably making a profit and they're getting what they want out of it. But that's really insignificant for the price of Bitcoin. The price to me that what really matters is, and currently it's taking back the speculative frenzy. That should continue. It's not, I think it's getting towards the end of the ball game. But I always look at it versus gold and I think it's going close back to the price of a per ounce price of gold, which is actually up today. So I think that convergence is, is happening and will continue and probably meet this year. So you had a great call on gold, by the way, which I remember from a couple of months ago. So well, well done there. So Bitcoin, I mean, give it it's the volatility. You said some of the you think a lot of speculative volatility has come out of it, yeah. the, the currency. What do you think the future is of Bitcoin. Well, that's the key thing I think is important is I really believe that Bitcoin is becoming digital gold. And we published on that today. And by digital gold is I look at it 10 years from now. If it's not, if we don't have some form of technology like cryptocurrency, which is probably Bitcoin, that is not a better form of global currency, I'd be surprised. But it's happening fast. And one thing we noted is it's been act, acting like gold as an inverse factor to the dollar, which is what you want to see. Bitcoin peaked in, you know, 20,000 and right about the time the dollar bottomed, depending how you measure and the recent bottom in bitcoin was when the dollar peaked so it still has more excesses to come out but it's also a just a more modern version i think it's getting there and i don't know what's going to replace it people say there's other coins maybe it's going to go the way aol but it has the hash power it has the computation power you can't do a 51 percent attack in bitcoin so to me that's happening it's just still too expensive the problem with the idea of Bitcoin as digital gold, in my mind, is that gold's price is determined not just from its haven quality, but also from the fact that people actually wear gold and use gold in uh, in, in a variety of ways. So, how does crypto? How, how does Bitcoin sort of get past that hurdle in having the same kind of store of value reputation among investors? while also not having the other purpose. Transportation. Yeah. It's a key thing. It's hard to, I mean, we all have gold in our bodies, most of it's jewelry, and you get, that's the number one form for gold. And gold historically has been a store value, which you know I view as still positive and the dollar's peaking. But with Bitcoin, you can transport it, even, with a click of the button, you can, you're in Venezuela or in Argentina or Turkey, you can diversify your dollar, your currency assets, which is this deflating paper, into something that is a little more stable, and then move from there. With gold, you have to physically move it, and there's restrictions historically. You can put, basically you can move move millions of dollars of value on a thumb drive that you can't do with gold. And to me, that's where it's going in the future. What? All right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. I was just going to ask, I, I love putting Mike on the spot. I think we all do because he can handle it. How do you think, how does one really value Bitcoin? It's not supply and demand. There's not the present value of future cash flows. How do you value this thing? That's the key thing. And I look at it more right now. It's going to be at some point transactions. And I look at it very similar to gold. So that's why I'm thinking what's going to happen this year. I'll be able to get a better value on it when I see how it reacts to what I expect is going to happen the dollar peaking. And gold is obviously going to rally, but actually valuing it, it's based on the demand. Now, historically, you think transactions, but it's really not a currency. It's like gold is not based on transactions. It's based on the desire to hold that and put it in a vault and put it away and diversify your portfolios. And to me, that's what's going to be happening, but actually value it. So I look at to one way of value is looking at volume trading, which yeah. is speculation, and volume is way down. So that means Bitcoin to me right now is should go down a lot 2400 just based on the late, latest volume figures All but right. See, it's I, it's it's just it's it's should find a, a foundation at some point this year very interesting thanks mike i again putting him on the spot he can handle it that's mike <laughs> mcglone mike's a commodity strategist for bloomberg intelligence
When you think about asset classes that are experiencing extraordinary growth, ETFs are absolutely at the top of that list. Uh, to give us some color on what is going on in the ETF marketplace today is Martin Kremenstein. Martin's the head of exchange-traded funds at Nuveen Investments, which I just learned is today is a subsidiary of TIAA CREF. About $970 billion total assets under management, of which about, I think, $20 billion of those are ETFs, roughly. Um, so it's about $20 billion yep. in responsible investing assets. Of that, about $500 million is ETFs. So what are, the, what are, what are you seeing in f fund flows right now on ETFs? What, what's hot? What's not? Um, so we're seeing, starting to see quite a lot of uh, investor interest and flow into our um, responsible investing ETFs, our ESG ones. Um, we launched them a couple of years ago, and we started to see the, towards the back end of the year as they were getting towards their two-year track record, uh, flows start to pick up and investors start to come in. So ESG, which for those who don't know is environment, social, and governance, right? That's right, yeah. And so that has, and I, I know it's always been fairly important metric or, or investment concern for European investors, not so much in the US. Are you sensing that ESG focused investing is, is really gaining in popularity or, or interest? I think so. I mean, there's, there's been a ton of um, kind of news and, and kind of hot air about it. Um, but now we're actually starting to see investors come to, to the, the market. And really, it's because these products now, the ones that are out there, the newer ones are starting to show that you don't have to give up performance in order to have uh, a responsible investing mandate. The problem for me with wrapping my head around ESG funds is I don't totally understand what the standards are to be an environmental, social, and, and, and governmental, uh, gov governmentally responsible company. So how do you even measure these things? They seem rather fuzzy. Yeah, so I think you're right. It is a little fuzzy, and it's certainly on the industry to do a better job of explaining that. <clears throat> I think, though, what you can do is you can take an industry, uh, say, like um, technology, and you can mark each company according to the material ESG um, factors for that industry. So for technology, it's going to be things like pri data privacy, uh, data security on, under the social. Environmental is less important to them. And then if you do like we do, you compare tech companies to each other and you select just within a sector the best performing companies, you're able to give a market exposure within a product uh, and, 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 and be able to enhance the ESG characteristics of that portfolio. And over time, we've seen that actually can give you better returns. So the returns, so let's just talk about over time, how have returns been for ESG funds or companies that score highly on ESG? Has there been a tight correlation in terms of outperformance or underperformance? So what we've seen, so we have a two-year track record now for our first ESG products, um, and we've seen strong outperformance for the two value products, our large cap value product, our mid cap value product. They're both in the top quartile um, of their peer group, right? And that includes active managers as well as index funds. So that, that's good performance for an index product. Our small cap product uh, is in the top 6% for its peer group. Um, and it makes sense because when you look at what you're scoring on ESG, right, do you waste material resources? Um, do you have good, do you pollute? Do you have good relationships with your customers, uh, with your client, uh, with your um, workers, with the regulators? And then do you have a good, good governance structure? Those are all markers of, of kind of well-run companies. And so it can be looked at as another way of defining quality. Um, and quality goes very, very strongly with value. We know that. It also goes very strongly with small caps. Yeah, but I, just to push back a little bit, you know, you talk about privacy with big tech, and I'm just wondering, Facebook shares did phenomenally well before they were uh, sort of illuminated as potentially having privacy issues, and then their shares crashed. I mean, how, how much at risk are you with some of these metrics of following the trend of picking up on news and then, uh, and then punishing the stock after the fact? Well, so we never held Facebook in our large cap growth portfolio. 
uh, from the start because its big privacy issue last year, it wasn't the first time. It, they'd had issues in 2014, hence the, uh, the agreement they had with the FTC. Um, and so I think when you're an investor, even if you don't believe in the principle of responsible investing, you should actually look at a company's ESG score if you can get hold of it. Um, and if it changes drastically, you should want to know why. Look at the underlying reason and have they fixed that issue. And if they haven't, then uh, that it would not be in your uh, in your in your category for ESG. I'm just wondering how much have ESG funds outperformed of late? Um, so I think last year our large cap value portfolio outperformed the Russell 1K value by about 400 basis points. Um, our large cap growth portfolio outperformed the. Uh, Russell 1K growth by 100 basis points, 100 basis points outperformance in small cap. Um, and then we, I think we were on, the, on kind of with the benchmark of for mid cap growth and value. So do CEOs care about ESG? Do they recognize that it's becoming a bigger part of investors, certainly retail investors, but maybe institutional investors in their investment process? Have you, do you think CEOs care? They do. Um, and I think it's been driven because this is, this is something that's relatively new for the retail space, but the institutional space, it's been a big deal for a while. The endowments of foundations, um, you've seen kind of some of them have been removing fossil fuels from their portfolios, removing coal companies. Um, <clears throat> this is a conversation that's been going on for a while. It's only now kind of, you know, percolating down to the, the retail level. But this is something that I think you're going to see more and more compliance on because it is starting to move stock prices, I think. So how do you market this? To whom? Um, so really, we, we market it to financial advisors, um, a lot of whom are having clients coming to them saying, what do you know about responsible investing, particularly when they do succession planning with the spouses and, and the, the children of their clients. Um, but honestly, when you see the performance from our small cap portfolio, from our large cap value, um, we can go out and say, you know what, if you're looking at using value in your portfolio, you should look at an ESG quality set of factors with it. When you're looking at small caps, you should really look at, look at it through as an ESG lens as well. I, this is a question I'm really looking forward to. <laughs> which, comp which sectors score poorly on ESG? Um, so the traditional um, old school respo uh, social responsible investing where you just stripped out sectors um, <clears throat> that were kind of poor performing, you'd always just remove energy and you'd remove utilities. And that's why a lot of the older products were essentially uh, just growth portfolios because once you've removed those, it's very hard to build value. Um, from our perspective, we want to have all sectors represented within an asset class because we want to give asset class representation because if you're, if you're building portfolios and these five products are part of an overall suite that you can build full asset allocation portfolios, we need the products to actually perform, uh, particularly in stress environments, like their asset classes. Just real quickly, in, uh, in 30 seconds, I'm wondering, I frankly heard some surprise that there hasn't been more money going into ESG. What's your sense of that? It takes time. We, we have a two-year track record for our domestic products. Our international products only have 18 months. Our core fixed income is a little less than that. <clears throat> when more of these products have three-year track records, they get their, their star rankings, and, and you can see the, the benefit out there, um, I think you'll see more money come in. Ad advisors and investors are skeptical of back tests, right? They all look beautiful. Um, we need to show them that it works out in the market, and, and that's what we're doing at the moment. Martin Kremenstein, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, wonderful thank, having you. Thank you very much. Martin Kremenstein is head of exchange traded funds at Nuveen Investments, which is a subsidiary of TIAA CREF, uh, overseeing $970 billion uh, here in New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.